You're listening to episode 57 of the Journey to Launch podcast, Money Lessons from four-time Olympian Lauren Williams. T-minus 10 seconds. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, journeyers, welcome back to another episode of the Journey to Launch podcast. This is going to be a little special, a little different. I am coming to you live. Well, the interview itself was brought to you live from Podcast Movement. That's what you're going to hear with my guest, Lauren Williams, who is a four-time Olympic athlete. She's a three-time Olympic medalist and the first American woman to medal in both the summer and Winter Olympic Games. So, I mean, this woman is tough. She has the mental fortitude. She has the discipline. And now she's applying that to finances. She's a CFP and a financial advisor who is now helping millennials and professionals get their money together. And she didn't have a great experience throughout her Olympic career with money. Well, she didn't have a good experience with people who were hired to help her with money. And she wants to change that for others. And I'm excited about this again because it's live recorded at Podcast Movement. And if you stick around until the end of the episode, I'll talk a little bit about the behind the scenes of podcast movement. I gave a speech, my first kind of major speech, I'd say, about podcasting, and it went really well. So I'm going to dive deep into that a little bit at the end of the episode. So if you want the episode show notes for this, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 57. Don't forget, you can follow me on all social media as Journey to Launch, tweet, Facebook, Instagram, just DM, hit me up. Let me know you're listening. Share it on your social media pages. Share it with your family and friends. I'd really appreciate that. All right, let's get into this interview with Lauren Williams. Hey, Journeyers, I have a special, special treat for you. I'm actually here live at Podcast Movement 2018, recording with a very special guest, Lauren Williams. Hi, Lauren. Hello. Thanks for having me. Sure. And let me tell you why Lauren is a special guest. So Lauren is a four-time Olympian. She's the first American woman to medal in the Summer and Winter Olympics. And I know you're like, okay, Jamila, that sounds amazing. That's great. But what does this have to do with finances? <laughs> so we are going to get into that. Lauren, before you start, I just want to frame this interview by saying that I'm just impressed with what you've been able to accomplish in your physical accomplishment, the toughness that it takes to be an athlete. But you also are in the financial field now. And I think that the skills it takes to become an Olympian, to become a world top class performer are also some of the skills you need to get your finances in order. So we're going to talk about that connection, and then we're going to specifically talk about what you do in the finance field. So welcome, Lauren. It is so good to be here. I, that was quite the introduction. <laughs> Sometimes I just feel like, oh, is that, that me, really? But yeah, it's been a really cool journey that I've been on from 
going to the Olympics and at the age of 20 to running my own financial planning firm. It's been all sorts of different things that have happened along the way. And it really started with negative financial planning experiences as a professional athlete that led me to wanting to be better in organizing my own finances, take more control and responsibility over that, and then also decide to help others do that. Right. And so let's take a little bit back to your background and how you got started in your Olympic career. I know you also did sports in school. So can you just talk about that? How did you become an Olympian? Yeah, so I'm a little girl from a small town called Rochester, Pennsylvania. Actually, I split time. I like to claim all the places that I'm from between Detroit, Michigan and Rochester, Pennsylvania because my parents split up. So I'm raised between the two places. I started running track when I was around nine years old. And my mom will tell you the story that I got home faster than a family German shepherd. And she was like, okay, I got to get this kid in the track program. (laughs) My dad, on the other hand, says that we were at the Carnegie Science Center. And I started racing a Flojo hologram and just went above and beyond all day long. That's all I did. I didn't see anything else at the Science Center. And he was like, okay, this girl's going to have some promise. But the one thing that they always instilled in me was the importance of education. You've got to get your education, Lauren. You've got to stay in your books. You know, education will take you where you want to be, all those different things. So I always wanted to be the smartest kid in the class. I was very interested in math. I was always kind of like that entrepreneurial spirit because both of my parents were entrepreneurs, always had their own businesses, multiple businesses. My mom had a bakery. She did all kind of catering out of her house. My father had a restaurant at one point. He had a food truck that like sold seafood. So they were always like up to something. So that was kind of instilled in me as well. So like the math and the money thing was kind of a basic principle that I've always dealt with during my whole life. Right. So it's almost like you were a double, triple threat because I find that some athletes are not into schooling or education and academics as much because they're relying on the athletic abilities. But you had the academic and you had the athletic skill. And then now on top of that, you had that entrepreneurial mindset. So that is like a force to be reckoned with. So tell me a little bit then now about your journey just to become an Olympian. That is exactly it. It's like you said, I had these three things that were kind of laid out and it was always academics, academics, academics. And I was hoping to get an academic scholarship or planning on that. And then track and field kind of came along as an opportunity for me. And I was like, oh, you guys just want me to keep running in a circle and you're gonna pay for my school? That sounds awesome. I'll totally do that. So I got to the University of Miami on a full scholarship. And I really was just grateful to my coach for the opportunity to get a free education because I knew how expensive it was. I knew I came from a family that wasn't going to be able to afford it otherwise. Five sisters and two brothers. There was no college funds at all. So in order to try to pay her back is what really led me to be motivated to work my best on the track because I wasn't very passionate about it at the time. But doing that, I made it to nationals my freshman year, made it to nationals my sophomore year. And then my junior year, it started to grow like that passion for competing and winning really and wanting to be my best. And so I wanted to reach my full potential in this thing called track and field and started to buckle down, really focus on what I needed to do. And I won the national championship, but I also ran the second fastest time in the world. So here I am, my junior year in college. So I'm 20 years old. I am currently the second fastest woman in the world, national championship for college, but also fastest in America and the whole world is looking. Yeah. So I had to change my focus immediately. My coach sat me down, had a talk with me about what does it look like to go from college to professional sports? Because that was still kind of a gray area for track and field and Olympic kind of world. Like, how does that work exactly? And so I let go of my last year of eligibility as a college athlete. I got a sponsorship from Nike and I'm 20 years old and I'm making six figures. So the first thing I need to do was figure out what to do with my finances. And so I was a finance major. I was still 20. I didn't have a lot of experience or background in this area. And being a finance major doesn't make you a personal finance expert. So I hired someone, but that gentleman didn't really seem to know what to do with a 20 year old. I didn't have basic financial literacy in place and he was very investment focused. 
And what I learned later, once I started to learn the industry more, was that he earned a commission for selling me an investment product. And that was his main focus. He wasn't really a financial advisor on all aspects of my financial life. I find it very interesting that you weren't even really thinking about the Olympics or becoming on that level. You just wanted a free education. You were really good at running and you saw that opportunity. You took it. Now, you said you slipped in that you were a finance major. So you were always, like you said, interested in money and numbers. And then just from sheer talent and work, you were able to become the second fastest woman in the world at 20 years old. You got to deal with Nike, six-figure deal. So you were in school still in your senior year, like when you had that deal, when you were training now for the Olympics? Yeah. So like I said, education was always really important to me. So even though the regular schedule would get you done in four years, I was always doing summer school as well because I would hang around for the summer. So I actually only had, I was supposed to have a full year left because I left after my junior year, but I only had one semester. And so I was lucky enough to negotiate that within my contract where my new sponsorship was like, hey, they're not going to pay for my education anymore because I've taken money. University isn't. So what am I going to do about this? And Nike said, hey, we'll pay for your last semester of school. So I actually finished in three and a half years, made sure that my education was taken care of because you never know you're going to fall down, break your leg. And what seems like a really good sponsorship deal in the moment was going to leave you hanging and you're going to have to go do whatever life after sport is at some point anyway. How did you know to ask for that? Like, again, I know you had a lot of internal drive, but were your coaches or your parents advising you, like, listen, make sure you finish your college education. And not only that, but make sure Nike pays for it. How did you know to ask for that? I didn't necessarily know to ask for that. I did have an agent at the time. And I just said, you know, my education is really important to me. And so that's certainly something we can ask for. We don't know what's going to happen, but why not? And I think that looking at a 20 year old and trying to lure me out of school with a six figure deal, they said, you know, what's another 40 K or probably not even that much because it was just one semester to get this girl that we want to have as a representative of our brand. Right. Well, great job on that. That was really smart. You're getting Nike to pay for your last semester in school. Talk about now that experience. You now have money. I mean, because with the scholarships, I think when you're a college athlete, you don't directly get much money. You get it through the scholarships. My husband got a full ride to this college. So he got his meals for free and he got a little stipend, but it wasn't like a lot of money. So now you get this six-figure deal from Nike. Did you know what to do with that money or what did you do? I had no idea what to do. <laughs> exactly. I didn't feel like I was rich. That was one thing. I knew I was very blessed, but I didn't feel like, oh my goodness, I'm going to go make it rain in the club sort of thing. I knew I needed to be responsible. I knew I needed to figure out what to do. I was so confused that, I, like I said, I was very dependent on someone else to help me. I wasn't sure if I was able to move out with my college roommate. And so we were paying like eight thirty five because I remember us splitting our rent. So like four thirty two each or whatever. Anyways, uh, <laughs> random numbers that you remember. But like I said, I knew I had significantly more money, but I was like, can I move out? Should I move out? Little things like that, I wasn't sure. And it was like, well, can I move into an apartment on my own or can I buy a house? And I didn't want to make any decisions without having talked to someone about those things. So I didn't go buy it. Well, actually, I did total my car like within a couple of weeks of going pro. Um, so I needed a new car pretty much immediately. Did you buy a luxury car? I did not buy a luxury vehicle <laughs> because my dad jumped in there and was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He went to the auction and he had been doing that, you know, kind of as like a side hustle for a while anyway. So he was like, you do not buy anything. You will take a cab until you figure out. Like, And so he got me a, a Yukon XL. It wasn't beat up. I wouldn't say it beat up. But but it was older. It wasn't like a brand new car. Yeah, it was not a, mm -hmm. yeah, was not a brand new car. <laughs> That's it. So. Right. You said you were working with an advisor at that time and you didn't feel like they had your best interest at the time at heart. Yeah. These are the things. If I'm paying you as the advisor, luckily my dad was around to help me with that. No one helped me with the house purchase. And so I was like, the advisor said, yes, you can purchase a house. But he didn't tell me how you go about buying a house. It was in the middle of the market boom. So, you know, the realtors jump on you and they say, oh, little kid with, you know, six figures coming in. Certainly, let me show you this. And they're going to 
trying to sell you as much house as you qualify for. Right. You don't necessarily need as much house as you qualify for, which I think was like six or seven hundred thousand dollars I qualify for. I'm 20. What am I going to do with a six or seven hundred thousand dollar mortgage? That's a, a bigger house. So not having anyone to really direct me in that area, I ended up buying a four hundred thousand dollar house. I didn't max out in that regard, but I still think that someone could have gave better advice on what are the long term ramifications of buying a four hundred thousand dollar house because you pay over that over 30 years and I'm not going to be a track and field athlete for 30 years. So what does that look like? And having those conversations with me, no one did. Yeah. And so I don't know if probably you maybe at the time weren't thinking it from an investment decision. When you bought the $400,000 house, was it like, oh, this is a great investment or it was just like a house that you like? How did you purchase it? Yeah, I was, you said, I definitely thought it was an investment. All you know is kind of like what you hear. The little bit of conversation that people have about finances, that a home is like the American dream and, and it's a great asset and it's going to appreciate. And it's a really big thing when you are able to purchase a home. And I put the standard 20% down. So I was doing a good thing in that regard. I thought I did a really good thing and, I, and it didn't end up being a bad thing. I still own that house. It's pretty much almost paid off. So I'm really excited about that. It's actually like one of my short term goals is to get that mortgage paid in full in the next 18 months. So. Yeah, it didn't end up being a bad thing. I just remember very clearly that there was no conversation about it, and it could have been. And the other part of that story is that I went just two years later and did buy another house. And like I said, called the advisor before and said, hey, I saw this other place. I really like to purchase this. And he's like, I've been waiting for you to call and say you wanted another house. And I'm just like, really? Some red flag should have gone off at that point. But at the same time, it's like, well, he has access to my finances. He knows my situation. And houses are assets, right? So I did. I went and I bought another house. Now, that house was a terrible idea. Right. It wasn't a good purchase. No, it was not a good purchase. I didn't need two homes at 20, what was like 22 at the time or 23. Mm-hmm. Unless you were looking at it more as, okay, I'm going to rent this out. It was a pure investment decision. But for you, you didn't quite understand that. Exactly. Your purchase at the time when you got the six, first six-figure deal, where is that money now? Can I ask if it's still around or if you kind of went through it already? I did a really good job of saving. So that was one thing. Like you said, the investment guy did make sure that I put money aside every time, but he just didn't advise me on anything. Anything else. And so it wasn't like we never had a conversation about what my savings rate was. He just said, give me some money. We got to the end of the season and you had X number of dollars left over. And he'd say, hey, give me a hundred for this. We'll put some in your retirement account. So I had a brokerage account, I had a retirement account. And then there was money set aside for taxes. There were systems in place, but they were never explained to me. I just did what I was told. I wish somebody would have spent more time and understand what my plan was, why I was doing this. Could I have a higher savings rate? Once he took the money, everything that was left for me was, was left for me to play with. So how did you then make the transition from doing things just as you did it versus being intentional and saying, you know what, I need to do things differently? What changed? In 2007, he called and he said, I love to call my clients, you know, and talk to them personally whenever something happens. Now, mind you, it's not 2008, 2007. So I'm still not sure, you know, looking back on it, this is like a precursor to what was getting ready to happen in the market, et cetera. But he said, we lost a lot of money today and I wanted to call and let you know. Well, he never said how much money we lost. He didn't explain why we lost money. He didn't explain anything about the markets and like what happened. He just said we lost money. I had to get the next statement in the mail to realize I'd lost money. Like how much? That was just like, oh, okay. And I was like, he doesn't sound panicked. I always was trying to go off of the cues. And so the other thing too is in the way that people choose or not to choose to work with someone, it's usually because you know, like, or trust that person, right? And so it came to me from a family friend. Like I said, he was very influential in the social circles of the people that my mother and her social circles hung out with. And they were all very educated people. So I'm thinking this guy is very affluent. You trust him. Like he has my best interest. Okay. I guess I don't need to know every single detail. Exactly. And so there were so many things that, yeah, I should have just opened my mouth. And I did ask sometimes and there was always kind of like this blown off, like you don't need to worry about it. I got it all handled. You just run. Just You don't worry your pretty little head. You just go out there on that track and run. And that's the thing that I built my business on. It's like not enabling an athlete or a 
young professional, but educating them instead. I'll take care of it, but you need to know what I'm doing. You need to be able to have an educated conversation about what's going on. Right. And as you're talking, I'm just thinking whether it's like you have a six-figure deal or six-figure job or not, that a lot of people can have felt this, and I've felt this too, just like being maybe on the other end of a phone call or in front of someone at a bank or just someone who knows more than you and you might have specific questions and you don't know exactly what to ask. You're confused and you're a little embarrassed about it. Exactly. And so, I mean, I've since asked questions. I don't care how silly or dumb I sound. I'm going to ask. If it pops up in your mind, ask it. And I always tell listeners, we all don't always get it. Things can be confusing and it's okay to step up and just ask because if you don't, You're now stuck in a situation where you have this shame about, I actually did not understand anything that this person just said, but it makes things worse because you're not like getting ahead of the issue or understanding the real problem. Yeah. And you don't get the opportunity to find those red flags because like you said, someone's only telling you what they want you to hear and you don't know anything. So you don't ask it. And so all you have is the nice, beautiful platter that they've laid out. But you said in this situation, it ended up being I got my statement in the mail. It was like $80,000 that I lost. And like you said at the time, it wasn't even like a significant amount to me. It was just like, I mean, it was a lot of money because I came from nothing, but it didn't impact my whole portfolio in a way that I was like broke. So like you were saying, like, you know, what happened to the money over time? Like I did a really good job of saving the money. We lost money here. We lost money again in 2008 because I ended up leaving that advisor, going to a different advisor. Well, what he did, he just transferred all the accounts to his name and didn't do any trading. Ah, but the new advisor didn't really do anything with your portfolio and you weren't aware of that. Nope. All I saw was these statements are coming. I didn't really know how to read them. I wasn't very interested in just like, okay, I got lots of money in the middle. And so as long as everything's going good, you're not tripping on it. So 80,000 was a big enough loss for me to fire the other guy and find a new one. You still weren't even with the new person engaged or intentional. I had a really long conversation in hiring the new guy, telling him what I felt like I wasn't getting from the previous one. And he swore that, like, yeah, we do all of that. And you should sue the other guy. This guy didn't do a good job for you at all. And we do this, 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 and this. And the only thing that they did differently, and I think where they kind of hid under the facade of calming my anxiety, was that they provided a bill pay service. And so it was a lot more cash flow intensive because they provided the bill pay. They knew exactly, you know, on a month-to-month basis what I was spending. And what do you mean by bill pay? Like they tracked what you were doing? They paid all of my bills. Yeah. Oh, they paid the bills for you. Okay. They physically paid all the bills for me, which, you know, he said previously. And so this is the beginning of auto pay. So most of my bills were on auto pay, the ones that were available and the rest of them I was paying. I was managing just fine. But it was like, oh, this is the added service that they do for me already. Why not not have to worry about my bills at all? And like I said, that that gives them a better inside look. Your whole picture, like they can see cash flow, inflow and outflow. Are you overspending or yes? Okay. Exactly. So in my mind, they're doing something on the next level of what this other guy was doing, but they really weren't. They were just paying my bills no matter what the bills came in. And so the story about that is like T-Mobile one time called and they said, cut my phone off. And I'm like, what? You know, sometimes they, the old school way is like you couldn't call out, but people could still call in. Yes. And so Frank and I was like, can you call Timo? So we got on the phone. They basically said that the last two months was $500 and you've only paid the regular 80 bucks that it was. And so like you said, they just been sending the money in, not paying any attention to bill. And it was because they had switched the plan. So I went international and the international plan didn't kick in or, you know, something like that. So it was a little bit of confusion, but here are the people that are paying the bills that I'm paying to pay the bills. And and they're not even paying it right. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. Now you're on to your second advisor. It's <laughs> right. not working out. <laughs> like at what point you're just like, all right, I got, this has to stop. Like I got to get in control of this. After the first advisor, a light bulb cut on and I started to slowly educate myself. But like I said, I was still full force engrossed in professional sports, still pretty busy, not super passionate about like, doing this for myself, but I started to kind of lightly educate myself. 
within the second advisor, it was just like, okay, like you said, enough is enough. And I'm talking to friends. I'm asking people like, what are you doing? Do you have a SEP IRA too? How much money are you putting into it? Because last year I could put 30000 in. This year I'm putting 40000 And then someone told me the max is fifty. So I'm asking these questions of my friends and they're just like, girl, like, what are you talking about? No, like, like, don't talk to me about your money. Like, I don't want to hear about your money. Don't ask me about mine. And so you realize you're like, but like, we're, we're cool. Like, we're tight. Like, why, why are you acting like that? Like, I can't spend your money. And so I just started to become a lot more aware of the taboos around money in addition to where do you find this information? So a few people that would talk to me didn't know where to find information or weren't trying to read up on it. And I was just like, we got to do something about this. And so that's when I decided to be the solution to the problem and realize that athletes were not getting the service that they need, that we were all kind of walking around here being so important and celebrity athletes. But yeah, we're making plenty of money, but we're not doing anything to organize it. Right. And something that you said that stood out to me, and I think anyone can relate to this, though, whether you're an athlete or not listening, is the busy part. I think sometimes we get so caught up in the day-to-day of all that we're doing. And I mean, I'm sure at the time you were in back-to-back Olympics, you were training, you had the deal with Nike going on, and almost just like, I don't have the time to sit down and worry about that. And probably the added security that you knew you had money coming in kind of felt like there wasn't anything dire happening where it's just like, okay, I'm not going to have money tomorrow. So I think busy, loaded with probably the security of having a well-paying job or position is a very dangerous combination because you get very comfortable and you go on autopilot and then you push things off and you don't look at things. So I just thought that was interesting because I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that feeling and kind of not being on track. For sure. The cliche, he says more money, more problems. And I think you hit the nail right on the head with like how dangerous it gets to be a high earner because you kind of cut yourself on. You know that you're spending less than you earn. So it's like, yeah, whatever. But that's where, like you said, all the mistakes can be made and the things start to fall through the cracks and recently saved money on with a client on their electric bill. Their electric bill was through the roof and they just didn't realize that by simply switching from one plan to the next because they can afford to pay the electric bill, whether it's $800 or $1,200 a month. It's not a big deal to them. Other people are like, well, my bill's over $100. There, there is some danger in being a high earner and, and just getting kind of complacent in your earnings. Right. And I know people are like, oh, what was me? High earners. Get out of here. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, a, you know, I'm a middle low earner. But I would say that this is why I know it doesn't feel this way. But if you are not a high earner, but you're working your way up there or you're not at that point, I think it's best when you can learn to manage the little bit of money. Yes. Because when you get in the position now to make money, you are such better equipped to handle it. And so just look at this as you don't get in the position or you're not going to be able to manage the big, big bucks if you can't manage the smaller bucks. And that's how high earners become. Low earners are just flat broke. And you hear the story all the time. They go, oh, if I had that much money, I would never do that sort of thing. But yeah, if a windfall comes in your hand and you're not prepared because you're not financially responsible with the little bit that you have, how are you going to be financially responsible with having a lot? Right. Good, good point. And so you now you're saying, all right, I'm going to be that solution. So what did you do to become that solution? So yeah, literally a Google search in 2012. I was just kind of fed up. People kept leading me toward like Series 7. To be a broker. Yeah, exactly. And that's basically selling investment products. And I was like, this doesn't feel like what I wanted to do. This feels like very, like I said, investment focused once again. I didn't understand what would happen after I passed the exam or what the next steps were. But I just kind of flipped through that book and didn't feel good about it. So Google search, just like me putting in terms, led me to the certified financial planning coursework. And I was like, ah, here's something that covers all aspects of your finances, where you'll be well-versed in taxes, you'll be well-versed in estate planning, retirement, investments, the fundamentals from the budgeting to the debt. 
all these different things that happen that are a part of your financial life. And I was like, this sounds awesome. And I blindly enrolled, just clicked the pay now button and was off and running. Still didn't know what it was, how that was a different part of the industry that I didn't know that there was a sales part of the financial industry. And then there's this other like comprehensive focusing on your whole financial picture part. I still didn't get that. And then my boyfriend at the time was talking to his mentor and his mentor said to go find a NAFTA advisor. So I was like, oh, what's that? A NAFTA? NAPFA, N-A-P-F-A. Okay. And so I Googled NAPFA and found that they were called fee-only advisors and that they really pushed the CFP certification. I was like, oh, that's that thing I just signed up for. I didn't know anything. I just like, they're CFPs. I want to be a CFP. I'm going to find myself a NAPFA advisor. So I just Googled the nearest one in the area. I got my resume together and I walked into the office and said, hey, I want to work here. And they were just like, who are you? What are you doing? (laughs) We're not hiring. Right. At this time, were you still an athlete? Yeah. So this is 2012. So I have one year left on my contract. My contract was over in 2013. Your contract with Nike? I had switched to a different sponsor, Saucony, in the meantime. I was like, when you, so I was like, okay, I just finished the Olympics and I got one year left on my contract. I need to start thinking about what life after sport looks like. So let me find myself like an internship or something to get myself prepared because I know I don't want to get another contract after this. I'm not trying to continue on in track and field. I'm just going to let that one be done and go about my merry way. So I was still running. So I was looking for something that was going to be flexible. And I just told him like, hey, I'm trying to study for this certified financial planning thing. I see you guys are a lot of certified financial planners. I'd like to work here. And they were willing to work with me and hire me even around my training schedule so that I could get some experience in the field. And it just was mind blowing the difference in the service that they were providing to their clients and the services that I wanted to receive versus the two guys that I had worked with up to that point. So I was like, there are good people in this industry. At this time when you were going for this, was this more you knew that you wanted this to be a career move or were you looking to educate yourself for your own finances? I knew I needed something to do with life after sport. I didn't need to work immediately. I had saved up and by this time I had started kind of making a hodgepodging a plan of my own. My main plan was to at least not have to work for a year. And I ended up being set up in such a way that I didn't need to work for the first three years after completing my contract. So I could have sat on my butt and ate bonbons for three years before I would have needed to do something or I would have been starting to pull from retirement accounts. And obviously my goal was never to pull from my retirement. So I had set myself up. Here's three years of my living expenses. I want to figure out what I want to do, obviously, before the three years is set up. And let's just work it out like that. So I had the luxury of getting an internship that was, I think, I got like 12 bucks an hour or something and just trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. But I knew I needed to work, that I wasn't going to be retired from life because I was done playing sports. Right. And I wanted to go back when you started to take more control. So even before you looked into the CFP exam, when you started to get in control of your finances, what were some of the things that you started doing to help you get on track? A budget was the first thing. And it was the hardest thing because all I knew is I spent less than I made. And so it was like, well, how much am I really spending? One of the cool things that came out of the crappy financial advisor number two was the assistant that worked there. It's kind of like the secretary. She was the one who was in charge of the bill pay setup and those things. And so when their company actually tanked because they were fraudulent advisors, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Luckily, I didn't end up getting caught in the fraud. None of my money was stolen or anything like that, but they did steal a lot of money from NFL players in a casino scandal. But that young lady, she was looking for work as the company was going under and was just kind of like, I can help you keep your bills organized on a month to month basis as you figure out what you're going to do next because obviously this company doesn't exist anymore. And so she was the one that kind of cut the light bulb on for me like, hey, your spending is out of control. You need to do a lot better. Your career is getting ready to be over. It's just kind of like you said, sitting down and having that talk with me about what's your plan. I won't say out of control. I was spending less than I was making. But you had no idea. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, you could lower your electric bill. You didn't need to be spending this much on food, all these different sorts of things. And no one had ever had that conversation. Like, do you really need all of these things that you have? Or 
maybe you can stretch that money out. And that's how I ended up with three years versus the one year. Because the first thing we did was set a goal of like having one year of living expenses. But by cutting back on my expenses immediately, I was able to stretch them and like stockpile enough money away that I had three years of expenses. And this is probably like 18 months of my career is left. So in 18 months, I saved three years of money, whereas like all the other money had been stockpiling into retirement accounts where I wasn't going to be able to touch it. So I could have technically ended up broke at the end of my career and needing to tap into retirement accounts if this lady hadn't stepped in. And I think what you did is what anyone can do is if you can look at the long-term goals, short-term goals, what it is, what do you want to accomplish? Look and try to capture what's coming ahead for you. Like, okay, I'm not going to be working or have this guaranteed money. So what's the next step? Then sitting down and creating a budget, tracking your expenses and saying to yourself, okay, I may enjoy spending money here, but if I cut this back, this gives me three, four, five months longer runway to figure out what I want to do and have that safety net. So again, something that everyone can sit down and start thinking about. And just really having that talk with yourself about like, why do I need this? How is this adding to my life? Is this something that is going to make me better in the long run? Or is this something that's going to make me happy right now? And then five minutes later, I'm not going to feel good. So asking that why question every time before you purchase something makes you kind of reflect on and say, okay, this is probably something that's not in my long-term value system. These shoes look good this weekend, but on Monday morning, am I going to feel great about this or not? Right. And you didn't mention, but even while you were an athlete, you did go get your MBA. I did. Yes. Right. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. So in 2008, I enrolled uh, in the MBA program. My focus as an athlete was always getting more education because I didn't have a lot of flexibility with my schedule. Sometimes practice was at nine o'clock in the morning. Sometimes it was one o'clock in the afternoon. If it rained, I had to wait four hours for that rain to be over because my practice was the most important thing. It wasn't like, oh, you can skip the workout today. So it was really hard for me to get work experience. And so in thinking about how could I be better prepared for life after sport, I was always saying, well, let me get more education because I know that when my career is over, the 21-year-old that's coming right out of school and I'm 27, 28, I ended up being like 30 before my career was over. But at whatever point it ends, I'm going to be competing against them because I don't have work experience. And so I was trying to supplement that with by getting education. And so the MBA was yet another thing that I looked into. I actually a master's degree in nonprofit organizations and management. Because I saw a lot of NFL players that I went to school with opening up their nonprofits and they ended up in trouble because they were just kind of trying to stockpile money away as like a tax write off. But their mom was running the nonprofit and it wasn't set up properly and the proper structure wasn't in place. In addition to them just doing like one golf outing a year. And it was like, wouldn't it make more sense to put all these athletes together? More heads are better than one. Uh, More resources pulled in one place can be more impactful. And so I thought about that as a degree in nonprofit. And then I realized that like there wasn't very many degrees in nonprofit management. And so I was like, is this going to be more useful or is it MBA, which is a little bit broader, going to be more useful? And I could still probably go down that road if I wanted to. So that was my thought process in 2008 when I enrolled in the MBA program. Right. So, enrolled in the MBA program and then now you're a certified financial planner. Mm -hmm. When I think about being an athlete, I mean, I'm sure you have a lot of athlete friends at the top level and sometimes you hear these stories of they lose all their money and whether they get swindled by an advisor or they just spend money. I'm thinking like you're talking about practice and you never know when practice is going to be. It's not set schedule. You have to train hard and the mental toughness that it even takes to become a top performer And then I'm thinking about the discipline that it takes with your finances. I would think there's a correlation. So why is it then that a lot of these athletes don't have that success with their finances? Ah, I mean, that's a really good point. I think it's the great divide of education. And so they definitely have the work ethic in place to be able to conquer this and conquer that. But what the culture has created is you don't worry about that. You just 
put all these great characteristics over here and apply them to whatever your field of play is. But if you do, in fact, use the characteristics of being a great athlete toward your finances, you can. So let's say persistence, for example. you got to show up every day to practice. Some days it's going to hurt. That's exactly the same with your finances. Doing a budget is not the most fun thing on the planet. I'm sorry you can't sugarcoat it any kind of way, but it is something that's freeing when you are persistent. And sometimes you're going to be sore at practice. You're going to need to skip a couple days or you're going to fall off the wagon because of whatever. But what's your main goal? Good practices make good competitions. Good competitions lead you to the championship. Same thing with your finances. You fall off the wagon. You mess up a month. You go a little bit over your budget. You don't just give up forever and ever. You get back on the horse and you got to be persistent. So there's so many characteristics that I could go through that athletes have that they could apply to their finances and that other people can as well. You're looking at the characteristics of what it takes to be great in the personal finance area. Right. And I would think that too, like, and again, it's also those small little steps as an athlete, even just like going to work out at the gym. I say this too, like you want to like get your summer body in check, right? Or you want to get it together and you start and you could go to the gym for a week and you don't see the changes because they're not drastic, but they're changes. They're small, they're little, but and they're changes. And some people be like, oh, this is like, like, I don't see anything after a week. What's the point? And they kind of give up. And I said the same thing with your finances. So if you're trying to dig yourself out of a lot of debt or you got a lot of ways to go before you reach your financial independence number, it seems like a far ways away. And you might not seem to be making the biggest dent that you like, but that consistency and making those small steps, it pays off, but you have to stick through it and like, like get over that hump. You didn't get fat overnight. You know, right. I tell my clients that all the time. There's so many analogies that you can use between sports and finances or physical fitness and finances. And I said, like, yeah, you didn't get fat overnight. You ate a Twinkie one day and you were not instantly 400 pounds. And then you did it again and then you did it again and did it again. So now all of a sudden you work out once and you're like, why don't I have a six pack? It's the same thing. You can't just save $100 this month and now you're like, why am I not a millionaire? You know, right. you got yourself into $20,000 of debt over time unless, unless you bought one thing that was crazy. But yeah, yeah it's a process. Mm, it's a journey. And you know, one thing I just wanted to mention is that athletes of color, black athletes, athletes coming from poverty that do make it, that do get the six-figure deal, that do become on that level, I would think because of the lack of financial education, because of the lack of security of having money, that also is a recipe for disaster. And I'm sure you probably saw that a lot. Can you just speak a little bit towards that and how we can change that? I think one of the biggest things that could be a catalyst for change is really thinking about the diversity that exists within the financial planning profession. And so the industry right now, among CFPs specifically, is 2.2% African-Americans. So when you're thinking about the professional athlete world, we're talking about these low-income people, and they're definitely low-income people that are white or of other ethnicities, but what do we see on TV frequently is the African-American community. of Like you said, you came from very little, and now you have a lot. They don't have advisors that look like them. They don't have advisors that come from a situation that they have come from. And so if you end up with an old white man and you're a young black female or a young black man, all you've seen is a pillar of success is this white guy in the suit, and he's the only one that's pursuing you, and you're like, okay, I got to go here. But that guy doesn't know anything about the way that you grew up. It doesn't know anything about the culture and the society and the messages that you heard, the money messages that have been ingrained in you and doesn't really want to spend a lot of time on those things. It usually ends up being the same sort of person as the first guy I ran into where they get a commission for investing your money. Nothing wrong with investing. Investing is a great thing to do, but you have to spend time with the financial foundation. It doesn't matter whether you're a million-dollar athlete or a $10,000 earner. you got to have the same foundation in place. And 
if we got advisors in place that were willing to spend time with these athletes instead of saying, don't you worry your pretty little head, you just go over here, I'll invest this for you, when in fact their foundation is all out of whack and their spending is out of control. They need deeper help and someone who understands their struggle and the behaviors and the mindset that would have that shift. And so I think a huge part of it is going to be, one, the advisors that currently exist, black, white, green, or blue, investing the time in educating their clients. But then also we need to get more diversity in the financial planning industry. Someone who, like you said, comes from a diverse background who understands where these athletes are coming from so that they can relate to that and come up with the language to have that conversation with them. Because someone who's never experienced it, even if they want to spend the time, is going to have a really hard time explaining to a client why they can't buy their mama that house. When that is a part of our community and our message and the way that there is no man in the household, for example, and now you are the one as the son that's taking care of this mother. Mr. Old White Man that came from a two-family home and the mom stayed at home cannot relate. Getting people in the industry that can relate and decided to educate themselves and bring to this level is going to be an integral part of really changing the culture and the landscape for uh, professional athletes and other people who get those big windfalls of money and don't know what to do because they don't have a financial foundation in place. Right. That's such a good point. I mean, Lauren, I could talk to you forever. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to just touch upon what you did in the Olympics because I think it's amazing. You're the first American woman to medal in the Winter and Summer Olympics. So you did bobsledding for Mm -hmm. winter, right? And then which track? A hundred meters. I was a sprinter. Short, straight to the point. It was a good day for me if I was going 11 seconds or less. Okay. (laughs) Wow. Congratulations. So with that, do you just have any takeaways from your overall Olympic experience, that top level performance that you want to leave? the journey is with here today to help encourage them? Yeah. So my motto is hard work knows no limits. And so what it means to me is when you're working hard toward a goal, a door opens for you, an opportunity comes, and it is all part of the journey. So I'll go back to my childhood where I didn't really know I wanted to be a track and field anything. And my parents saw that I had some potential and were trying to encourage that. But there was sometimes it just wasn't money. And so there was somebody who would see my potential and come in and step in and give my mom money for track shoes so that I could have a pair of shoes to run with all season. Or someone would step in and give my dad gas money so he could drive me to attract me. When you're working hard toward a goal and people see your potential, a door will open for you. And so it's always about working hard toward this thing. We talked about it earlier, being persistent. It's hard for everyone, no matter what it is that you're pursuing, whether it's entrepreneurship, getting your first million in the bank, getting your first 10000 in the bank, getting your first $1,000 in the bank. Everybody is going to struggle in different ways because you're starting something new. And it's that day-by-day journey and that grind that you've got to continue on. But hard work knows no limits at all. The hard work doesn't have to stop ever. And when people see you working hard, there's always going to be that door that opens. There's always going to be that person that steps in and comes alongside you and keeps you going on that journey. Right. I love that. It's like I always say this, too. It's like when you do the work and you're following your passions, the universe will conspire to help you. Exactly. Exactly. Doors will open up. People will help you because there is no stopping you. So, Lauren, please let everyone know where they can find you. You have an amazing podcast. You help people now with their finances. So just list where people can get in touch with you. Yes. The podcast is called Worth Listening. You can find it on any podcasting app that you use. The business is called Worth Winning. I help people organize their finances. So you can just go to worth-winning.com. I'm on all the social media platforms. You can find Worth Winning. You can find me at Lauren C. Williams. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. Should be pretty easy to find me. I'm Lauren with the Y, L-A-U-R-Y-N. 
Yeah, and I look forward to interacting and working with whoever is interested in communicating with me. Sure, and I will link all of Lauren's contact information in the show notes. So thank you so much for joining me live at Podcast Movement, Lauren. Really appreciate it. This was a great interview. Thanks so much for having me on. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Lauren. She was such a pleasure to meet and talk to. And I really remember actually watching her at the Olympic Games when she was competing. I remember her face. So it's pretty cool that I got to interview her. And again, if you want the episode show notes for this, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 57. You'll also see the links and where you can find out more about Lauren and follow her also on her social media channels and listen to her amazing podcast worth listening. Okay, I wanted to just give you a little background on podcast movement, how this all came about that I became a speaker. And so if you've been following this podcast from the beginning, I literally launched Journey to Launch the podcast in 2017, a year ago when I attended the first podcast movement that I went to in 2017. At that podcast movement, I knew no one, I knew nothing. I had just literally put out a couple episodes, but I was so eager to learn, so eager to connect with everyone. I even took a picture on one of the podcast movement stages and said, I'm going to talk here one year. Well, I specifically said, I'm going to talk here next year. That was my goal and I was going to see if I was going to make it happen. A year later now at Podcast Movement, I spoke. So this past Podcast Movement, I actually gave a speech in a crowded room about my podcasting journey. And it's so crazy how it came about because initially I did submit to be on a panel with some amazing fellow podcast women and it did not get selected to be a talk at Podcast Movement. So I said, okay, maybe this is not my year. That's okay. I'll do it another time. I did get asked by the organizers to be an ambassador, which was essentially me promoting the conference. And when I was there helping out people who just looked like they were newbies and just being a champion for the conference itself, I was totally okay with doing that. Literally a couple days before podcast movement. So I left to go to podcast movement on Monday. I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday that I got an email from the organizer saying, hey, a spot opened up. Would you want to submit a talk? Do you want to give it a try? My initial thought was no. (laughs) I felt like I didn't have enough time to prepare a chat. I wasn't prepared mentally. I thought I was just going to go to podcast movement as an attendee. I didn't want to do any work. And now here I am given this opportunity to present. And so I asked advice of a few people, some fellow podcasters, my family and friends, what they thought I should do. And a lot of them said, why are you saying no? Because I first said no, because I was not only scared, but I just thought I didn't have enough time. And one of my good friends said to me, listen, if you don't feel like you have enough time, that's one thing. And you don't think you'll do a a good job because you need more time to prepare. That's one thing. But if you are going to say no, because you're scared to do it, then that's another thing. And you should separate those and make sure you're saying no for the right reasons. But if you're saying no because you're afraid to go out on stage and do this, then that might be a reason you say yes. So I was really encouraged because when I dug really deep down inside, I was making an excuse that I didn't have enough time to prepare. Because honestly, I'm a person that works under pressure. So Even if I would have had months and months to prepare for this, I would have been down to the wire fixing my presentation anyway. So I said to myself, you know what? I think 
the issue is, is that I'm scared to put myself out there. What if no one shows up? What if I do a horrible job? What am I going to say that they don't know already? So these were all the little thoughts coming up in my head that I was pushing back and labeling as there's not enough time. So I challenged myself like I usually do. And I said, you know what? You're going to do this. You can do this. So I said, yes. And I said, I'll talk. So I had a few days to prepare my presentation and to prepare my talk and went to podcast movement. Actually, the presentation wasn't even complete by the time I got to podcast movement. I was going back to my rooms in between sessions to fix it while pumping (laughs) to make sure that I was going to do the best that I could under the circumstances. And it was really good because I really got some time to refine my presentation. I was able to go over it with my roommates who really encouraged me. So I really, at the end of the day, I felt like I was going to do the best I could do. And remember, I did have a couple of days. So podcast movement started Monday. My talk wasn't until Thursday afternoon. And lo and behold, gave my talk and it went really, really well. I had A lot of people come up to me afterwards and say that was the best talk they heard all week and that they got so much from it. Not only was it inspirational, but I gave some actionable tips that people could use to grow and build their own breakout podcast. And that's what I talked about. I talked about growing the Journey to Launch podcast from zero to 230,000 downloads in one year, which is pretty major for a podcast that had no platform or no huge audience before. And I was sharing how I did that. And really, journeyers, I talked a lot about you. I talked about the fact that you guys are my biggest champions. You guys are my biggest promoters. You share it with your family and friends. You allow this message to get out there more and more each day, really. And so I was really proud and excited to share what makes me do this is that it's really just your encouragement, the fact that I know it's impacting your life, that you're improving your finances and overall just quality of life as you listen to this podcast. So I was excited to share that and people really resonated with that and got it and said, wow, you really talked about a lot of things that other people don't talk about and you shared some concrete things that I can do and I can take away. And so it was even better that I got emails even after the fact of saying, hey, went to your presentation, loved it. I was waiting for my Uber and two people approached me that were at the presentation and said they loved it. And so if you're listening to this and you were at the presentation, thank you. Thank you for being there. Thank you for being so positive. When I looked into the sea of people that were there, I saw a lot of smiling faces. So it helped calm a bit of my fears on stage. So I just want to thank you. And I want to share that with you guys because oftentimes you only see the finished product. You only see the presentation or the end thing, right? The end goal of whatever that person is doing. And there are a lot of things behind the scenes that are happening. And I wanted to share that I'm not perfect. And I had some reservations. I didn't know that I could do it. I was very nervous, but I did it anyway. So I pushed through my fears and I did it anyway. And that's what I'm doing with this podcast. That's what I'm doing with this platform. This is what I'm going to do to really live my best life. And I want you to do the same journey as I want you to push through Whatever it is that's holding you back, even if you're scared, even if you feel that you're not capable or you're not smart enough or who are you, if that imposter syndrome starts kicking in, I want you to tell it to shut up and do it anyway. So again, thank you everyone for your kind words and your support. I really can't imagine going on this journey with anyone else but you guys. So thanks again. All right. 
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share with your family and friends. Also, if you're listening to this in Apple Podcasts, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. You know I read every review. Until next week, keep on journeying, journeyers. Journeyers.